0: I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth so thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe hey there solar warriors welcome back thanks so much for lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource that you've got that's your time i promise i'll make good use of it today as we dive into another inspiring clean energy entrepreneur's journey so that you can learn from others insights as well as mistakes. And If you're new here, I do hope you'll take the time to give us an honest listen. And then if you listen all the way through and think this is worth your time, an honest review of what you think of the show. Well, Today's entrepreneur is redefining the way that clean energy buyers and sellers think about managing risk. Lee Taylor founded ReSurety before ever finishing his MBA and he amassed A portfolio of over five gigawatts of renewable energy generation with his unique insurance product I know insurance isn't always a sexy topic but I promise you today's story of the what when where how and why of Lee's entrepreneurial journey is worth sticking around if you do like what you hear be sure to subscribe to the show as that is how you will ensure that you don't miss our twice weekly content just like this you can do that over at my Suncast Dot com and get on our mailing list so that you'll get a heads up right in your inbox if you're the kind of person that watches your inbox for random in- emails from people like me. And by the way, that's also where you can check out, that being my Suncast is where you can check out more than 350 other founder stories and startup advice designed to guide you on your journey to a clean energy career with purpose. Now let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, well, I am stoked to have my friend Lee Taylor on the show today. And I'm grateful for the good folks over at Renewcom for bringing Resurity to my attention, a company that somehow had flown under the radar despite being one of those Boston startup culture solar companies that deserves credit and visibility. So I intend to get into Lee's story here today. First and foremost, a couple of things that we'll talk about are how Resurity is a company that Lee started while still in grad school, how he transitioned from his previous roles back into the his love for environmental policies and renewable energy, his time at GE and potentially time before, and why he's just never taken uh, an opportunity to work for anybody else once he discovered the crazy wild world of ensuring renewable energy projects. But first and foremost, welcome to Suncast, Mr. Lee Taylor.
1: Nico, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate the invite. Great to be on. Love what you're doing.
0: Thanks, man. Also, uh, love what you are doing. The more I learn about it, the more interesting and compelling the business case. And, you know, you are in such a niche that you're in such a broad category that your niche seems really uh it's it's really interesting that it's taken this long for products to exist that we might consider bankable, but I know we'll probably get into some of the fundamental reasons for that but before we get into kind of the backstory of how and why re-surety exists, can you give me a sense of your first real exposure to clean energy and how when you decided that this is where you're going to focus the brunt of your career?
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. So going of all the way back to motivations, I was sort of born and bred to be an environmentalist. Uh, I grew up in Seattle. My dad was an environmental reporter for the Seattle PI. My mom was a wildlife documentary film producer. So the, uh, you know, the plight of the uh, Kodiak grizzly and the spotted owl was sort of dinner room conversation. And that, you know, that led into uh, college and um, studied economics and biology with a focus on conservation economics, and wrote my graduate thesis as an undergrad, excuse me, as my undergraduate thesis on, uh, I think the title was Induced Innovation in Non-Hydro-Renewable Technologies, which is a very nerdy way of saying, you know, how do policies drive uh, basically, patent applications uh, as a measure of innovation in wind and solar, non-hydro, right, be non-hydro the telly- renewable.
0: <laughs> exactly is the telling right. word back in the early part of uh of this century for everything that is renewable, but that is not the predominant quote renewable energy of hydro today. <laughs>
1: Correct. Uh, that's, and that's so as many college graduates, you know, my, I went into roles that weren't necessarily the thing I was uh, most looking for, but who were uh, looking to employ. <laughs> and I, mm-hmm. uh, so I, I got away from uh, clean tech and, and renewables when I left undergrad. But after four years of working, I I went back to business school, specifically focused on getting back into renewable energy. And so uh, it was from there that I got an internship with GE and their Renewable Energy Leadership Program. That was my first real role in the renewables industry. And then I uh, ended up falling in love with an independent study I was doing that ultimately became ReSurety and so uh, uh, abandoned my GE ambitions and and took on uh, the entrepreneurial ambitions that became ReSurety.
0: Lee, I'm curious, as you think back over the time that you spent as a research analyst and as an investment analyst, do you have a sense of some of the early tasks or roles that you occupied that prepared you for the kind of work that you're doing right now?
1: Definitely. The energy industry is a data intensive industry, hourly, solar radiance, wind speeds, power prices, congestion in many markets, sub hourly is what matters to you. And so there's this enormous amount of information that goes into, you know, understanding value and risk of projects. And so, you know, most of my early career roles What was a number cruncher. So my, my first job out of school, I did econometric modeling for antitrust prosecution, mm-hmm. which is a very different industry, but number crunching at some level is number crunching. And so picking apart the historical uh, results and figuring out how to forecast those forward is something that folks do in the energy industry all day, every day. So very much from an analytical training perspective, supportive of, of the type of work my team and, and I still do today.
0: Yeah, I was looking at just sort of thinking through what are the core skills that someone would learn as a research and investment analyst, the ability to assimilate vast amounts of data and uh, communicate it back to a client comes to mind for sure. Why did you ultimately go back and, you know, notably Renewable Energy Leadership Program is something that folks will tend to use as a bridge back to sort of large company, large scale industrial renewables. And it's usually a bridge while in grad school. Could you give me a sense of why you went back to grad school to tuck and how and why you chose GE for your internship? I'm, I'm curious about your thoughtful decision-making process for getting back to renewables. And, you know, once you had sort of departed a little bit from your environmental journey.
1: Yeah. I think for a lot of people, Business school is can, can be a reset button, so you're three, four, five years out of undergrad and want to be on a different career path than you're on. And it can be difficult to you know be applied. So I was at the time working for a venture capital fund of funds that you know applying to GE from that role, they would say, you know what, why would we hire? Like we would hire other people who know renewables already. Why would we hire you? Um, and so grad school, and you know, this isn't exclusive by any means to business school, is a great way to sort of jump into that reset button from a career perspective, as well as building the skills needed to to succeed in that role you're trying to get into. And so Tuck was very much that for me. When I look back at the application I wrote to business school, in what was this 2009, I, I basically, you know, my application was I want to work in renewables. I want to do it at a big industrial scale. So I, the two jobs that I said I wanted coming out the other side of, of an MBA was either G E R E L P or PG and E at the time had a rotational program specific to some of their renewable efforts. So, you know, my, my goal was very big company focused on renewables with rotational training because that was viewed from from my perspective as sort of the best. And from a career development perspective, entrepreneurship wasn't mentioned once on my business school application. And so it was not something I was planning to do, but I, fell in love with the idea. And it, it seemed like a opportunity that wasn't being tackled by anybody. And it was, a fin- you know, what we, what we do at Resurity is very financially based. And it was in line with what I was uh, learning in grad school, albeit, you know, needing to get up to speed pretty quickly after graduating on, on all the domain expertise that are specific to power markets and renewables specifically. But that was really what took me to business school and, and GE and then and then on
0: to Resurity. Before we get too deep down the rabbit hole, which I suspect we will, what career path did you not go down, but you always thought you would? So I
1: would say for the majority of my life, up until about junior year of college, I was a uh, 100 percent going to be a marine biologist. So. (laughs) I majored, my first major was biology. I was an intern with a National Marine Fisheries Service Monk Seal Research Program. I scuba dived on a research aquaculture facility in high school and, and later in college. So I, I was convinced that uh, that was where I was going to go. Um, but it, in uh, in college, I started taking courses in, in particularly environmental economics. And I had a fabulous professor who opened my eyes from my perspective towards what the what the financial solutions were mm-hmm. to uh, environmental problems and the scale of the impact that those financial solutions could have and that was what ended up driving me more towards the uh, the financial side of of conservation as opposed to the the research side
0: as you were going through the GERELP program and getting ideas in your head about what was present what was lacking how did you begin to formulate what today is resurety. and i want to actually in the same answer if if you could i'll come back to it if for some reason we get um, a little sidetracked here but how did that idea germinate in your mind was it based on anything that you did by the way on g-e-r-e-l-p and i'm also curious was there anything that through the renewable energy leadership program prepared you for the work that you're doing now
1: the idea that I latched on to, that became resurety from you know really started from an academic perspective of essentially the the fuel risk of the power markets was changing. So the past hundred odd years, The power markets have had one primary risk, which is the cost of the thing you are going to buy and burn to produce electricity. And so that can be coal, that can be natural gas as the two biggest components there. But basically, if coal or natural gas is cheap relative to power prices, you make a lot of money as a power plant. If it is expensive relative to power prices, you lose a lot of money very quickly or you make no money if you shut the plant down. But that was sort of the, um, the history of risk management. And so there was an entire tool set of information tools, forecasting tools, uh, commodity desks traded those risks in order to allow people to have information about what risk they held and then manage the risk that they didn't want to hold at their project level. Renewables came in and really turned that upside down because you now had put the environmental benefits of renewables aside. It has this incredible economic benefit of a free fuel forever, right? So wind and solar are going to be free for the entire life of the project. And so that that risk that the project used to hold financially was gone it was replaced by a new risk which is volumetric risk how much of that fuel is going to show up in any given hour month quarter year and how is that going to align with power prices and so you basically shifted from energy price exposure to the weather and that was primarily risks that were being absorbed by utilities and absorbed by rate bases through utility procurement of renewables but it was right around the time i was coming out of school that that was starting to shift, and we were starting to see financial participants from the banks and commodity desks coming into the renewables market, uh, and we were seeing the com- earliest of the commercial industrial buyers emerge as buyers of electricity. And so these these risks that previously were frankly not that well understood or, or managed now needed to be understood and managed. And that was, from my perspective, the sort of opportunity I saw to make a, a, an impact on the industry. And in terms of the RELP. It was sort of polar opposite scale of you know working at GE and seeing the the scope of what they do on a daily basis globally is incredible and then you know you start a company and it's you and one other person in an attic <laughs> trying to <laughs> trying to get a first contract and it's you know so i think seeing the scale that renewables were and the impact they were having on the, the markets was sort of eye-opening at GE and the other big part of it was just the network that came out of that so you know. Several of the co-interns and I are in regular touch. They are partners, advisors, customers. There's sort of a, a strong network that comes out of that group of, of folks who are dedicated to advancing the industry.
0: I'm so glad that you point those specifically those two things out. So early in my career when I was coming out of grad school, I've shared this a, a few times on Suncast. I sort of had this ambition and this intuition, I should probably go do an internship. I actually looked into the GE RELP because I was also looking at starting a solar company. I ended up starting a solar company instead, but uh I went back and looked at the GE RELP a couple of other times. Uh my now mentor, Mike Gruno, who you know, who also went through RELP, talked me out of it and he ended up hiring me at Trina. So, I had this intuition like I should go work at this big manufacturing company uh coming out of grad school. And the reason for that was you get this macro view of what scale looks like in an industry and you get credibility instantaneously and a network instantaneously that you can't easily build on your own. And I feel like the way that you just described your RELP experience validates the suggestion that I've given to so many people who I talk to who they're like, oh, I want to go start a company and they don't know anything about the industry. And my answer is go figure out how the power markets work by hook or by crook, like go get a job at PG&E, go get a job at a power company, even if it's for six months or a year, and you'll be 10 years ahead of where you're at if you try to do this on your own. Yeah, 100% agree. They can also listen to all 360 episodes of Suncast and sort of accelerate maybe a couple of years, but um, (laughs) well, to that end, how did you get up to speed on power markets absent the GEL, RELP stuff?
1: Obviously the internship got... Uh, Introduction to that there. And the other, you know, I I give Tuck a great deal of credit. It's a relatively small school uh, with respect to a lot of it, but it it creates a great deal of flexibility. And I saw that in my experience, you know, they didn't have any dedicated coursework when I started there for power markets, energy, et cetera. And it really is its own world in how, you know, hedging works and contango and backwardation and forward curves and all the, the language that goes with power markets and energy markets. And so, so we went to the administration there, a couple of classmates and I who were interested in future in careers in energy and said, you need to bring professors in to, to teach this. This is where a lot of jobs are going and interest is going. And they did. Um, they wow. brought in Ahud Ron from uh, University of Austin, did a guest uh, lecture essentially there. Uh, he's an exceptional professor in, in energy and power markets. And so combination of that and I did two case competitions, two independent studies, and just sort of, you know, added stuff to my plate in in uh, school to, you know, uh, drink from the fire hose as fast as I could on that front. You know, the if other you, part of that, though, is then, oh, sorry, go ahead.
0: No, that's fine. But I'll jump back to the other part in a second. But can you remember, or do you have at your fingertips resources that when you bring on new staff who have relatively little experience with power markets like where do you send them to learn the macro intelligence about how power markets work
1: so we have a number of internal presentations and materials we we've published white papers that we sort of have as you know, quasi required reading uh when mm-hmm. folks are particularly if they're going to be on you know close to the product or the customer we also recommend you know energy gps out of portland oregon has a has a daily newsletter that covers power market activity and a lot of renewables that I read regularly. That's energy, energy, GPS. Energy, GPS. Correct. And this podcast, Energy Gang. Right. Like, there, there's a lot of really great resources today. The interchange that allow people to absorb. That the other part of it is just sort of get get your feet wet. You know, download data, play with it. There's a certain amount of of learning by doing that that's always required.
0: Super helpful. And you know, I think one of the things is that folks don't know where to start, and it's kind of drinking from a fire hydrant. So this is actually really, really helpful in terms of, you know, folks that are trying to get their head wrapped around it. They're trying to actually figure out how do I get a role in this industry? Where do I start? So I appreciate you helping share the, the information that you did. I'd like to know as you now are, you know, several years into running your own business and we'll get into exactly what, you know, what problem you're solving in the details in a sec, but is there anything that at a macro level and as an entrepreneur and a leader, you've discovered is kind of your number one headache starting and running this business?
1: So I'd say my most urgent headache right now is, you know, being trapped in a home office and, and losing the <laughs> interpersonal contact with the team yeah. uh, that we used to enjoy. Our company was very much of sort of a whiteboard culture. So folks did you know their, their work at their desk, but then when they mm-hmm. had a problem to solve, they pulled somebody into a conference room and gathered around a whiteboard and and worked through it. And that's... yeah we've found that to be damn near impossible to replicate on, uh, on zoom or blue jeans or anything like that. I mean, that's, I expect with happily uh, vaccines rolling out, that headache will go away in the near term. I think the the more, you know, permanent macro headache for everybody in this industry, myself included is uncertainty around policy and how that's going to impact opportunity strategy, et cetera. So, you know, whether you're on wind or solar or battery right the PTC expiring, the ITC stepping down, whether or not storage has to be linked to solar to have ITC credits, is there going to be a carbon tax? Is there not going to be a carbon tax? The uncertainty around that has huge impacts on you know how you build a strategy. And so you know, I think I'm delighted to see the infrastructure plan that proposal that came out from Biden's administration uh, mm-hmm. that looks like it's got a lot of great support for the renewables industry. And a lot of those are long term uh, clarity about what will happen, not year to year. And I think that that's something that I and any, any person responsible for setting long term strategy will latch on to anytime we can get get that certainty.
0: Hey, I know the fact that you are listening to this means that you like to stay ahead of your peers. You like to stay informed. It also means you probably have formed your own opinions. Well, I'd like you to bring those opinions and join my friend Tor, Solar Fred, Valenza, and myself as we host the revival of our great debate Series. That's right. We're partnering with North America Smart Energy Week Road to New Orleans and bringing you five installments of our great solar debate. Starting things off on May 26th with residential solar financing which is the best form for consumers? Leasing, PPAs, or PACE? We have some exciting guests, including the head of policy for Sunova that are going to join us and I hope that you will as well you can find details at mysuncast.com check out the banner we have there for the great solar debate you can also find the event on my own LinkedIn page linked there as an event you can find me on LinkedIn or go to mysuncast.com it's easy click on the button register right there you don't want to miss it put it on your calendars for May 26th the great solar debate hope you'll join us Hey, by now, I'm sure you've probably heard about our mission-minded program. Getting your dream job in clean energy in 12 weeks. Our current cohort is giving us great feedback and kudos, I might add, as they go through the material and our coaching calls. You can see more about what this program looks like at suncast.vip. That's our brand spanking new webpage to talk about the mission-minded program. That's also where you can send friends, family, neighbors, colleagues that you know who might need a little extra help, a little guidance to find that dream job in clean energy. Our mission-minded program cohort is ongoing right now. We are taking a waiting list for our next cohort. I'd encourage you to do two things. One, send anyone you know that might be interested. Two, those of you who are so inclined, please go check out suncast.vip and email me nico at mysuncast.com. Well, Lee, we've danced around it enough. I'd love to hear through the lens of perhaps competitive landscape. When I heard of reassurity, and I know cause I've asked several others now that this is similar, you know, folks just don't understand insurance products. And that's gotta be the number one thing that you uh, have to explain to the folks who maybe aren't your customers. I feel like your, your customers probably don't, ha- don't need insurance explained, but I bet they ask you the same question. I asked you, which is, you know, I'm familiar with Energetic Insurance and KWH Analytics. How's Resurity different? Can you maybe give us a sense of the competitive landscape for insuring different elements of risk for renewables?
1: Yeah, happy to. And I think just to step back, we aren't actually insurance. We, we support commodity derivatives. But I, so mm-hmm. I think if we call all of that risk management. And so you know, there are all kinds of risks that a project faces when it's trying to sell electricity renewable or otherwise and then there are particular risks it faces when when they are renewable. And so energetic insurance is a great example. So they provide insurance effectively against credit risk for off-takers, so buyers of electricity if they default, who makes up for those loss of payments to the project. And so the credit risk of the buyer of electricity is the specific risk that they manage. The specific risk that, that we manage is the value of electricity generated by a renewable energy project, wind or solar. And we manage that either or both for the buyer or the seller of that energy. And so you know, if you put yourself in the uh, shoes of a, of a solar developer and say, I'm, I'm going to build a solar project in this empty field. And it's going to be up and running in eighteen months, and it's going to be two hundred megawatts in size. And based off of your assumptions around average generation, cloud timing relative to prices, around the clock power prices. So basically, you know, the timing of generation, the volume gen- of generation, and the energy price. You've got some forward-looking distribution of potential outcomes. So let's, you know, made-up numbers. You expect to make ten dollars a year in revenue, but it could be twenty or it could be five, and that is a unfinanceable or intolerable level of future revenue uncertainty and so you look for a way to lock in a certain amount of revenue and so what we brought to the table along with partners uh in the insurance and reinsurance markets was effectively you know revenue insurance and so it was a you know it's called a proxy revenue swap and there's been future versions of that proxy generation ppas etc but effectively, we're saying, okay, so that you expect it to be $10, might be 5 might be $20. Let's assume a world of perfect information. We all agree that that's the exact future distribution. So the insurer will guarantee $9. So you know, if you end up making $10, you give the insurer a dollar. If you end up making $5, the insurer gives you $4. And so you as the project, through the settlement of your revenue hedge, and your generation by your project, you always add up to that locked in value. So it's, it is guaranteeing a level of revenue to a seller of power or guaranteeing a level of cost to a buyer of power based off of, you know, where the project's located, radiance at the location, power prices, et cetera. So we provide risk management specifically to that problem, which is revenue or cost certainty.
0: Can I ask a question? So when I was down in Latin America, there was another company name. I can't remember down in Chile in particular doing something called contract for differences. Is that essentially the same thing?
1: It's exactly the same thing. And Uh, so a power purchase agreement with a commercial industrial buyer is a contract for difference on energy price. So if you have a $20 virtual PPA with a, Tech company, you have a contract for difference on the dollar per megawatt hour of the value of your power, no matter how much you produce, no matter when you produce it. You then have a fair amount of uncertainty around how much you're going to produce. Uh, that's significantly more impactful for uh, wind and for solar. But there's also versions of contract for difference with commodity desks. So you could mm-hmm. be talking to a bank and you will have a contract for difference on energy price, but it's on a specific quantity of energy every single hour and so you have committed to delivering 100 megawatts at noon on july 5th 2023 and if you don't produce 100 megawatt hours on that hour you have to go buy it in order to fulfill the obligation but in all cases those are contracts for differences on energy price yeah proxy revenue swap which was our first product was a contract for difference on revenues rather than saying we'll guarantee a dollar per megawatt hour at this specific time like a bank might it is saying okay i'm guaranteeing ten dollars in our example i gave earlier i'm guaranteeing nine dollars of revenue over the year and so when you produce your power how much power you produce and what power prices are all of those risks roll up into a single hedge and that was our initial product
0: now You mentioned Energetic, and I'm really clear, thank you, for the credit risk underwriting element of how Energetic is different, and it's actually like an insurance product for credit risk. What's not clear to me is the KWH product, because as I recall, they refer to it as a hedge or a put, and maybe I'm just not a financial analyst, so I don't understand a lot of these terms. Could you help me discern the difference between a put and a revenue swap?
1: Yeah, happy to. So right there, their product, the revenue put is typically used for projects that already have a PPA. So uh-huh. you've signed a $20 PPA per megawatt hour, you know, made up number for your project. And so now you continue to have this risk of, well, what happens if I, you know, and I think I'm going to produce a hundred megawatt hours a year. But I might produce 90 megawatt hours per year if we have a, a low irradiance year or I have, in, a, in their case, they take operational risk in that product as well. So if I have an inverter problem for some period and basically my, my my revenue will go down because I'm selling fewer megawatt hours even though I have a known dollar per megawatt hour price. And so KWH will put a floor in, which is the you know, put is just a floor. And it's saying, okay, well, we're gonna guarantee that you're gonna produce 95 megawatt hours. And so if you produce ninety, I'm gonna make you whole for the megawatt hours you didn't produce. So I will pay you as the insurer five the five megawatt hours you didn't generate below the floor times twenty dollars. So I'm going to give you a hundred dollars to make you whole for the, the the volume of energy you didn't produce so it, it is definitely a related product. The difference there is, is that product pretty much only applies when you already have your price risk already hedged price and shape mm-hmm. risk so when you produce power in terms of covariance with energy prices and what pen, energy prices are over that period mm-hmm. those are already hedged via a uh, the power purchase agreement and the Revenue put is an add-on to that to guarantee a certain volume. You know, the outcome is increased revenue certainty, so it's, it's definitely a, you know, an analogous product.
0: I really think I'm starting to understand this now after the second conversation with you on this topic, and I, I've genuinely never had anyone on the show or off the show explain it. As clearly, I'm in your debt for that. Thank you. I presume that if this is in your earbuds, you're one of (laughs) many of us who is also uh, giving a a virtual tip to, to Lee for this explanation. I'd like a little more practical application on the risk management side and kind of harking back to your make money versus lose money and fuel risk. You guys recently tw- tweeted and I'll quote it in Texas postmortem at recharge no- news quoted you uh, contract structures drove who was financially impacted and who wasn't the real takeaway is that the power market impact was a lot bigger than the weather event. W- what does that mean for us lay people who don't understand weather impact and risk management?
1: Yeah. So February was of 2021 was a extreme example of, you know, Uh, on many orders of magnitude, of how volatile power markets can be. And so, you know, ERCOT, where, you know, most of Texas uh, power is managed in the Past 11 year history of the modern grid in ERCOT, I think they'd hit $9,000 for three hours in total. Those were all in August of 2019. They were at $9,000 a megawatt hour for more than three days this year. And so it was you know, 11 times more volatile than the previous ex- most extreme. What I meant in that interview around it was more extreme on the power market side of things than the weather is that it, it was extremely cold. And it was extremely cold across the entire Midwest and Southwest and for an extended period uh, four days. But the weather event was within the, d- the tails of a known distribution. So, 1983, it was actually a little bit colder. February of 2011 was pretty comparable, with the exception of about 36 or 24 to 36 hours that were a bit colder. You know, this year than, than that year. So, we are talking sort of a you know, depending on your views of how to predict future weather events given climate change, you know, you're talking somewhere between a one in ten and one in forty year event. So, very rare, but not off the charts. The power market impact was off the charts as I mentioned you know 11 times more you know higher prices in that month than has ever been recorded and so the reason for that was the grid really struggled and so outages were enormous the majority of the outages were gas driven so shortage of supply but basically there just was not nearly enough energy being generated to cover the demand Blackouts followed and that was what led to, you know, both a humanitarian you know problem in, in Texas with the impact that had on anybody who was trying to heat their homes with electricity during that event. But on the power market side of things, you know, it was half a billion dollars an hour was being made or lost, depending on whether you were on which side of that. And that was for days on end. That was the stage of what February looked like. The comment about, you know, contract structures drove who benefited from that and, and who was hurt by that financially, I'll walk you through a couple of scenarios to lay out specifically who would win or who would lose. So in a, a merchant plant, so if you have a, a solar project and you don't have a contract, you haven't sold your power to a CNI customer or to a bank, right? That was an exceptionally positive period for you because solar actually did an extremely good job of producing during that period. There were some outages and snow cover impacted, but most of the potential energy that solar could produce during that period, given the irradiance around the state, it did. And so if you were producing energy and power prices are $9,000, those solar plants made an enormous amount of revenue, you know, years worth of revenue being accrued in days. And so that's a, a, a winner financially from that event. But let's say that exact same solar project had signed a contract for difference with a commodity desk and they'd guaranteed some level of megawatt hours every hour and if they didn't produce those megawatt hours they had to go buy it from the wholesale market to deliver it to the commodity desk because they'd made that commitment already during that extreme event in february operations performed quite well but solar radiance was low There was basically a lot of cloud cover particularly over the northwest quadrant of the state where a lot of solar has been built And so there were projects that were producing way below their normal expectation for that time of year in any given hour. And so that meant that those projects, you know, if they'd committed 100 megawatt hours and they only produced 60, they had to go buy 40 megawatt hours at 9,000. And then they already sold their other 60 at, you know, call $25 under their existing hedge. And so that became a very painful moment. And that's for the exact same project in the exact same location, but two different hedging structures one with a you know no hedge, one with a, a what they call it, bank hedge or a P99 hedge. The next versions of that are you have signed a as-generated PPA with a CNI buyer. And so if you had signed an as-generated PPA with a CNI buyer, any power that you generated during that period, the contract for difference would settle to the benefit of the CNI buyer. So basically the CNI buyer was being paid out of that contract. You know, let's call it let's say you signed a $25 PPA, you're paying them $9,000 minus $25 for every megawatt hour you generated. And so as the project, we neither had upside nor downside to that event. You were just selling your electricity at $25, The but that was a huge benefit to the buyer of the power because of the contract for difference. Mm-hmm. The last structure is the kinds that we support, which are proxy generation-based contracts. And so proxy generation is a way of saying, rather than when you, when you trade power with a bank, you commit to a certain number of uh, megawatt hours per hour. When you contract with an insurer for a proxy generation-based contract, you're committing to an operating efficiency. So you're saying, my plant will be available, 90% of the power I can theoretically produce given the irradiance at my location in any given hour, I will actually inject into the grid and various forms of losses that would mean why it's not 100 but in so in that case, you know the irradiance at your site is low, and so the amount of energy you owe to the insurer is low, and so if your project was operating during that hour, you were similar to an Nasdaq and PPA, neutral to the event because you you produced the amount of energy that you could given the solar irradiance at your location, and that benefit went to the insurer because power prices were high. If, however, you were not operating during that hour, you had shut down, you know, your, your, let's say your inverters were not winterized, and so you didn't produce any power during that hour, you have to pay the value, you have to go buy the value, the, the volume of power that you would have generated, given the irradiance at your location each hour, and deliver that value to the insurer. So you know, that's the exact same project, four different contract structures, all with very different outcomes and risk for the project.
0: I just want to pause for a moment here for you, dear listener. First of all, I want to say that for those who obviously don't know how these shows come together, you may think that Lee and I prepared for that, but Lee had no clue I was going to ask that question because I literally pulled it from their Twitter account moments before we did the interview. Uh, I just want to give you uh, a round of applause, Lee, because that was fantastic. Fantastic. It truly was, and the other. I want to say that if you <laughs> haven't learned anything today, and, and in the words of my friend Andrea Lukey,
1: you learn something new every day.
0: You certainly do. I feel like I was just uh, uh, schooled on how power markets work, man. That was really, <laughs> really fantastic, and it just for me further confirms <laughs> your incredible handle on the market and the product in a way that I haven't, I haven't encountered. Uh, I just want to commend you, man. Like what a tremendous explanation. I would encourage you to stop and back up whatever that was five minutes and re-listen to that segment because that my friends was a masterclass on how power markets work. And I don't think I've ever heard that explained so well. I'll be sure to send you a snippet of that. Cause I'm sure your yeah. team will want to re yeah. share it. <laughs>
1: I appreciate Man. it. I've uh, had I've had, had practice on that one.
0: I can tell. I can tell. That was really well formulated. And I'm like mostly impressed that you had no idea the question was coming and, and you just jumped right in. So thank you. Maybe a little bit of a non sequitur, perhaps not. Tell me something that's true for you, but that very few people would agree with you on.
1: So I don't I don't know if I have any truly original thoughts uh, i think that you know that nobody else has ever has ever thought of uh but i, I think oh the, yeah this
0: is this is more the of the like the thing that we where where are yeah. you controversial less than where are you sure. unique
1: yeah i think where i'm controversial uh you know probably comes out and I'll, I'll give you two examples one is that example i just gave you around you know if you have a proxy generation based contract or you have an as-generated based contract how you operate your plant has very significant exposures for the project and so almost all developers and they should like it prefer as generated contracts and that's because essentially you you target an annual level of availability usually and it makes the project significantly less sensitive or entirely insensitive to operations at the at the hourly level and this is a manifestation of how renewable energy contracting came to fruition. So, you know, almost all power markets trade hourly or sub hourly, but renewables through annual PPAs with utilities, the entire ecosystem of how renewable energy was bought and sold was around annual goals. So the annual generation times an annual price, et cetera. And so what we've seen is that the renewables industry, as they've emerged out of something that requires policy to to drive development to now just sheer competitive economics driving development, renewable energy from a financial perspective is looking more and more like any other form of electricity generation, whether that's gas or otherwise. And that's creating these hourly specific risk profiles that need to be more dynamically managed. And I think that that's something that we are we, we advocate for in the industry. The contracts we support create incentives around optimizing at the hourly level instead of the annual level. Uh, but I would say the, the industry as a whole, I, I wouldn't say necessarily agrees with me. So that's probably the one area where I think buyers of power generally uh, favor that sort of annual granularity of, of operations and sellers of power uh, still fairly strongly favor the, the annual level. And, and that's an that's a ongoing conflict in the industry.
0: Yeah, I have a feeling that you and the folks at Clean Power Research are often in conversation about how to bring people up to a different standard of uh, of econometrics on this, but we'll leave that for a different, a different podcast conversation. We have a few more minutes left. I want to take advantage of some of your insight around your own personal growth and development. A couple of questions that we usually ask, and then uh, we'll have to bring this interview sadly to a close, but... I would love to hear if there are specific examples of how mentors in your life have had an impact on your career and any major takeaways from conversations or, you know, life lessons from those mentors that you might, you might pass along.
1: So there's a couple folks who have been really impactful on, on my career. Uh, I think the first is Ken Westrick, who Mm. was my co-founder in starting Resurity his company was a sponsor of my research in grad school and, and he and I, you know, were aligned in how we, how we saw the world. And so the thing that's most stuck with me with Ken is, uh, you know, his, his views around the importance of sort of the team aligning around the mission of the company. And, and Ken is a foreign military guy. And so talks a lot about, you know, being on the chopper, off the chopper or things like that. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's been, you know, something that, Identifying team members and rewarding team members, and, and building a culture around that, you know, team alignment around the mission. I think is something that that uh, reflects in our um, strategy and culture today in terms of you know company wide transparency in our decision making because you know it's, it, it's everybody's on the same on the same chopper. I think that you know two other folks that highlight. Ken Davies, another Ken, uh, was one of the first people who I worked with as well uh, on this project in in grad school. And uh, he has been with Google and Microsoft and is now uh, with Birch Infrastructure, a new company. Um, And one of the things that, you know, Ken has this unrelenting intellectual curiosity and is trying to always figure out, okay, so the industry is doing X today with Y method, but there's always a better way to do it. So, just that constant goal towards improvement—something that I, I try to I try to replicate—and I think is important for all of us in the industry because it, as far as we've come, it's still a relatively nascent industry, and there's a lot of things we can do better. And then last, I have an uh, executive coach, a woman named Amy Villeneuve, who's terrific in many ways, but I think the supporting me in the in the goals of sort of servant leadership, right? So the the view that. It's your job. and you know, it's not your team's job to be a force multiplier for you. It's your job to be a force force multiplier for your team. You know, how how do you sort of aspire to your own irrelevance as a leader because you're hiring and enabling people better than you? I think that's something that also drives a lot of how I I try to interact with 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 our team. And I highly recommend having mentors and coaches for anybody who is out there and and trying to get things off the ground and get or or grow them at really any stage because it's it's those are invaluable resources.
0: Couldn't agree more. Yeah, we. Talk a lot here about the importance of a mentor and the importance of a coach, especially as a founder, to ensure that you, as you said, uh, are aspiring to your own irrelevance. I've never heard it put that way. Kudos to you for uh, giving you that, uh, that freedom and helping you sort of live in that truth. That's really, really amazing. I'd love to know if you have any, any additional lingering advice for fellow entrepreneurs who are currently in the throes of startup life.
1: So the only piece of uh, of advice I would I would give to almost any entrepreneur, uh, well, there's two things. One, try to modulate the extremes a little bit, particularly in the early days. Entrepreneurship is full of very high highs and very low lows, and so you know, moderating that and and recognizing that that volatility is is true for everybody. And I think the key for me in in riding out that volatility in in our early days is is the support system you have around you. So my wife, my family, uh, for me was was that you know, having people who believe in you and what you're doing, even on the, the days where you lose faith uh, is um, impossible to replicate.
0: Fantastic advice. Uh, it isn't entirely in some ways about who you surround yourself with. Well, I'd love to know, uh, Lee, as we start to wrap up here, uh, last two questions, what corners are you looking around? Are there externalities that you're monitoring that are going to impact the renewables market in particular?
1: So the thing I think we see coming next, for the industry as as a next big wave of of innovation, and and I'm gonna uh, talk my own book here, but I I also think it's true, is getting much sharper in how we think about and calculate and track and optimize for uh, carbon impact. So, you know, as context, not all renewable energy is created equal, right? So a solar project in one part of West Texas can have significantly different carbon impacts than a solar project in another part of West Texas based off of how it interacts with the grid. Whereas we are very precise in how we track value in dollars per megawatt hour, the industry as a whole has been fairly imprecise and inaccurate in how we track tons of carbon per megawatt hour. So there's a number of companies that have helped advance uh, carbon analytics and making marginal carbon, at least at the regional level, available. Uh, But one of the things we're most excited about that we've been working on and we think for industry impact is we're going to be launching a locational marginal emission technology in the middle of this year. Um, And that basically means that we, for the first time, make it possible to know the carbon impact of any megawatt hour at any location, um, which can be very different for one project versus another. And we think that that will really help drive much more efficient investment and impactful investment in where you site solar projects, where you site wind projects, where you site storage and how you operate it, where you value transmission lines from a carbon perspective, in addition to a dollar per megawatt hour perspective. So that, that's my, uh, my next big thing that I think is for the industry and for us.
0: That is fantastic. Lou, we'll have to have you back and talk specifically about carbon analytics and this locational marginal emission technology. I'm actually really uh, intrigued by even the the name and the practical application as you just, just described it. Well, for folks who are equally intrigued by your story, where do you like to be found? Where can people look best engage with you?
1: So uh, my email is a great place to start. So it's l taylor at reshorty.com uh and then also if you go to our website we have a lot of materials on there and a lot of different ways you can ask to be added to our mailing list or or ask for us to reach out to you and so you know we are as a company always on the lookout for basically three things right team members partners and customers <laughs> those are the three things that we look for and so if, if you, anybody who's listening to this is interested in being one of those or multiple of those uh we would love to hear from you
0: that was brilliantly said well let's end today With a bold prediction, as you always do, Lee, what one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball?
1: Uh, My crystal ball is maybe more of a a hope and a prediction, which is that Biden's infrastructure plan passes this year. And we have uh, predictable, significant support for our industry uh, in the years ahead.
0: Lee Taylor is the co-founder and CEO of Resurity based in boston united states it has been an absolute pleasure to deep dive in the world of risk mitigation for renewable energy products with you today lee look forward to having you back on suncast thank you for joining us today
1: thank you much for for having me really appreciate it
0: all right there solar warrior what an episode that is a wrap but the conversation doesn't have to end here i just wanted to say a special thank you to The Renewcom team, and in particular to you, Lee, for joining me here on Suncast. I am smarter today than I was this morning. I hope you, dear listener, have also learned how the power markets work and how you can mitigate the risk inherent in them. If you, like me, are eager to keep learning, then my fellow Philomath, you can head on over to mysuncast.com for the show notes the resources and highlights from this and every other discussion along with social media links book recommendations and so much more it's easy to find at mysuncast.com since you're already going to be online i'd love it if you would take a moment and share this episode with someone that you trust would learn from it over on linkedin it's such a treat when i and lee get to hear how this episode resonated with you what do you think you learned from today's episode who do you think needs to learn? As Well, well, we'll be back again next week as we usually are on Tuesday with a tactical Tuesday and Thursday with what might be considered a thoughtful Thursday, one of these deep dives with an industry pioneer or entrepreneur, entrepreneur, C-suite thought leader and executive who's building a business that matters in the clean energy transition. Thanks so much again to our sponsors and to you, our members, for helping make this content free to everyone else. You can learn more about all of that and how you could partner with us to reach thousands of Suncast listeners just like yourself over at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor or by clicking on the become a member button at the same website remember you are what you listen to thanks again for showing up solar warrior it's half the battle